This show is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find the other great shows on the network, head over to the Deluxe Edition Network.com. I've heard a lot about the origins of Blood Creek, but I've never actually read the town history myself. Every town has its origin story, but Blood Creek has too. The first is a sunny tale of hardy, idealistic settlers following the Reverend Samuel Ashdale and his wife Lydia to a plot of fertile land at the foot of a mountain with a great winding creek that bordered the land on two sides. The second is a dark and morose tale of death and persecution that starts with the unearthed body of 23 mutilated young girls and ends with a curse. Both stories, as well as the entire history of the town, were originally recorded in a big mahogany-stained leather-bound book known as the Ashdell Ledger. At that point, paper was made of linen, so the book is thick and lumpy, the pages all uneven. Time has left its inevitable mark, and its leather is cracked and peeled in places. The gold-leaf gilding of the title has long since faded and lost its luster. Today, that book is kept in a special room in the basement of the Blood Creek Library, where all the books that require special handling and care are kept. Because of its age, and since most of the pages are in various stages of disintegration, it's basically unreadable. It only serves as a historical artifact, delicately stored in a clear, archival box, brought out once a year on the Founders' Day Parade and put on display. Luckily, in the late 1800s, a small assembly of historians and one determined librarian took on the Herculean task of transcribing everything within this book's tattered pages. With the help of the newly acquired machine known as the typewriter, they were able to transfer everything into a neat stack of uniform, black-printed pages. Eventually, as technology progressed, all the pages were scanned and digitally archived and available on the library's internal database. Everything that has ever transpired in the town from 1666 until present day can be easily accessed with the swipe of a Blood Creek library card. With the recent events that have unfolded in Blood Creek, I thought I should head over to the library, and since it's Founders Day, Take a look at the original history of the town, along with the newer transcripted version. And I thought I would share all of that fun history with you. Heather, can you grab the Ashdale Ledger, please? Yeah, I still can't believe we're bringing this book out every year. No one looks at it. It's still an important part of the town's history. People just don't appreciate history. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Heather. Are you looking for a spot for the Founders Day Parade? Actually, I'm here for the book that Heather's grabbing, the Ashdell Ledger. Here it is with (coughs) all its glory and dust. Thanks. I'll take that. Really? You're going to read it? I'll be careful. I promise. The book begins with a notation. 
The group who performed the original transcription consisted of six men, three borrowed from a fancy university, two from a historical museum located in the state capital, and Mr. Newton, the town's own local history teacher. The person in charge of this project was the Blood Creek librarian, Margaret Tandy. She was the first female librarian in the town's history, and she took her job very seriously. She had suggested the project at a town council meeting and had been looking forward to the task. They each took turns reading aloud from the book while one would type. Margaret loved to dictate. The dusty tea smell of the old pages was pleasant to her, like an expensive perfume. She was soothed by the rhythmic sounds of the typewriter striking against the paper. She imagined each punch as a chord being struck on a piano or picked on a guitar string. There were so many words, so many stories, and so much history to sift through. It was the first time in well over 150 years that someone had gone all the way back to the beginning of the book, and Margaret and the men were humbled by the meager beginnings of 43 men, women, and children who settled in the town. So let's start there, where Margaret and the historian started in 1666. The settlers had named the town Ashdow, after the brave and resourceful reverend who had led them on their journey. The first year was difficult for the new settlers while the land was being established and the farms were plotted and seeded. The soil was good, and the creek was perfect for aiding with irrigation. There was a thick patch of forest a mile west of the settlement with plenty of trees for lumber. However, the first harvest yielded little, and most of the livestock died from a mysterious ailment that spread amongst many of the farms. By the beginning of their second year, things didn't seem to be getting a whole lot better though the illness that was killing off the animals had seemed to run its course. A new illness had popped up and was making the people of the settlement very ill with fever and fits of coughing that produced thick green balls of mucus and pus-filled blisters that formed on the inside of the mouth. <coughs> there, there. It's okay. Drink some of this for me. Open your mouth. Let me see. Three children died in the span of six weeks, and everyone was in a panic. There were only two doctors in Ashdale, and both had differing opinions on how to treat the illness and what was causing it. I'm concerned about her. The blisters are so unsightly. I fear she'll die. You must continue to place this in her tea and have her drink it daily. Dr. Jones called on us earlier. He wants to apply leeches to her face. Martha... You must trust in God and the medicine he provides to us. Dr. Jones' leeches have had no better results than the tonic. Your prayers are of utmost importance in these grave times. Do not lose your faith. Thank you, doctor. The illness ravaged the town and by its end, which came abruptly and without any discernible reason, it had claimed the lives of 13 children and 12 adults. Three months later, a large gray animal that resembled a wolf began stalking the town. It was larger than a wolf and had long, spindly legs with patches of hair missing. Its snout was shorter than was usual for a wolf or wild dog, 
and its teeth stuck out from its mouth, jagged and uneven. Its first victim was a three-year-old boy who had been walking hand-in-hand with his mother along the pathway through the churchyard that led to a small flower garden at the back. The wolf creature charged quickly and without any warning, grabbing the child around the middle of his body and pulled him away. My son, please help my poor Samuel. What has happened here? A creature, a wolf has snatched him away from me. I have the boy. He's alive. Samuel, oh my Samuel. How may I ever repay you for the life of my only son? Call the doctor, for the boy has scratches and bite marks. His wrist may need mending. The creature is not dead, only wounded. Lock your doors and stay indoors. The second attack came in the early morning. One of the town's older residents, Mary Watson, a widow in her late 60s who had moved back to Ashdell only a few years prior, was hanging out clothes to dry when the creature attacked. Two days later, Jacob Black was found ravaged by the animal in his own bed. The front door was covered in long, deep scratch marks, and the wood had been attacked so ferociously that the center of it had splintered, and it had managed to bore a hole through with its teeth and claws. There was nothing left of Jacob but teeth and hair and a gory mess of bone fragments and chewed tissue. The animal would kill three more times before it was satiated and disappeared, leaving the town to suffer its sins. Much of what was recorded in the book in those first ten years was bleak and disheartening. Despite the richness of the soil, the picturesque landscape, and the prime location between the mountain and the creek, the town was faltering. Through the rest of the 1600s and into the turn of the century, the town struggled to right itself. There were some successes, but most were overshadowed by hardship and death. And then, as if by some cosmic flip of a coin, things began to change for the tortured little town at the foot of the mountain. By the early 1700s, some of the wealthy noble families in Europe began to make their way across the Atlantic. Three of those families settled in Ashdale. The first to arrive was the Ainsley family. They made their money in textiles, though eventually they would build one of the region's first sugar plantations. The second family to arrive, the Kovacs, were Hungarian nobility that came from old money and had acquired large plots of land in and around Ashdale. They built the town's first manor. It was a beautiful stone construction, with a lush and lovely garden that seemed to always be covered in a thin veil of mist, regardless of the weather. The third family was the LaSalle family from France. Henry LaSalle, the family's patriarch, was a magistrate in the king's court and came from a long line of extravagant wealth. The arrival of these families breathed new life in Ashdale. They were generous with their fortunes and immediately began to funnel money into the town. Things were starting to look up for the people of Ashdale, but it wasn't until a hundred years later, when Cyrus Lawson and his new bride, Sarah, arrived into town, that Ashdale would experience true abundance. Suddenly, every harvest after their arrival was bountiful. Crops that were always failing suddenly sprung back to life. People were happy. The children were healthy. 
and the weather was always bearable, even in the deepest of winter. Ashdale was prospering beyond anything anyone had ever seen before. More people were drawn to the town, and businesses began to grow. The air was lighter, the flowers bloomed bigger and brighter, and the general well-being of everyone was at an all-time high. Cyrus was an apothecary and gifted herbalist. He could always be found brewing colorful and potent-smelling elixirs, which he concocted in the tiny greenhouse behind the lost gnome. Though the residents of the town rarely suffered from anything more serious than the occasional upset stomach, headache, or cough, Cyrus was highly skilled at making medicines for very serious illness as well. Rumors began to circulate of sick travelers who suddenly found themselves healed after passing through the town, and the neighboring towns started to send their ill residents to Ashdale for treatment. Most of these miracle healings were attributed to Cyrus Lawson. There was no illness that he couldn't banish. No broken bones his crushed herbs couldn't mend. But Cyrus wasn't the only gifted Lawson. His wife Sarah had a special way with animals that bordered on uncanny and made some of the townspeople uncomfortable though it didn't stop them from seeking her advice when one of their cows stopped producing milk or one of their horses suddenly went lame. Hush me, sweet. Yes, that's... Yes. I think you have a horse with an infection in its snout. I will have my husband recommend something that will take it away swiftly and get him back to work in no time. It was believed by some that she could communicate directly with the animals through telepathy, and that simply one touch from her was enough to calm even the angriest of bulls. One summer, a few of the farmers were struggling to keep a warren of rabbits from devouring their spinach and lettuce crops. They had found both entrances to their underground burrows and were planning to block one with a large boulder and then use an irrigation line to flood the main tunnels, which would inevitably kill the rabbits. Good day. I have come to help with the problem in your garden. Lead me to the warren. I have a simpler and less costly way to rid the garden of pests, as you call them. About ten minutes had passed before five large rabbits of varying colors, two brown and white, one gray with black ears, two black and white like Holstein cows, and the last was a tawny, reddish color, came out of the entrance and sat around her in a circle. She stared at each of them for several minutes before, one by one, they all disappeared into their burrow. She got up, brushed the dirt off the back of her skirt, and walked over to the group of men, assuring them that the rabbits would no longer go after their vegetables, and that there was no need to carry on with their plan. None of the gardens or crops were ever touched by the rabbits again. Although Cyrus and Sarah were a kind and generous couple, there was indeed a pall of mystery that blanketed them. And though no one ever treated them with anything other than respect and cordiality, the word witchcraft had been uttered quietly on numerous occasions. However, despite the townspeople's darker suspicions, the Lawsons grew and flourished in Ashdale. They eventually had four children, Annabelle, Thomas, and twins Noah and Rebecca. They lived on several acres of land in the northeast corner of town. Sarah took great pride in their two-story Victorian house. There were lace curtains hanging from every window, 
intricate silver wall sconces for candles and small oil lamps, shiny wood floors that Annabelle helped Sarah polish weekly. The home was filled with a radiant energy that people could feel as soon as they crossed the threshold. Anyone who came to consult with Cyrus always left feeling better, even before drinking one of his metal tinctures or chalky powders. By all accounts, the family was well-liked and respected. Even the Lawson children were adored. They were bright, cheerful, helpful children who always smelled faintly of sweet orange and vanilla, each with unique gifts of their own. Sixteen-year-old Annabelle was beautiful, like her mother, with long, dark, wavy hair that she usually wore loose and flowing, and large green eyes with thick, long lashes and pale lips. She set everyone around her at ease instantly, and people found themselves opening up to her unexpectedly. One minute they were shoveling forkfuls of rhubarb pie into their mouths during the monthly church social, and the next, they were spelling their deepest fears and uttering words they had never dared say aloud before. And always, Annabelle would sit sympathetically, nodding along telling them silently with a squeeze of their hand that everything was going to be all right. She never broke a confidence, and people respected her for that. Annabelle had been given the gift of premonition. She had always seemed to know what was going to happen just before it did. She predicted rainstorms that could dampen the community picnic, suggest an alternate location for a new crop, which would later show to be fortunate when the original location became infested with weevils. If someone was down, Annabelle would arrive unannounced to comfort them with a small gift or consoling words. If a child was in danger of falling from a tree, Annabelle was there to warn them of the weak branch before they climbed. Annabelle, where are you going? It is the middle of the night. Father, I must go. I feel it in my bones. Annabelle, wait. Let me walk with you. Tell me, where are you off to? The boarding house, father. See it there? Annabelle had seen the blaze that would have consumed the boarding house in her dreams. Her quick action allowed the men in the town to bring their buckets of water and ladders. She heard the screams of the woman trapped and the men were able to bring her to safety. The fire was squelched before it could spread to the other rooms. Later, when the people asked her how she had known about the fire, she said she'd seen it in her dream. The woman who was saved and the owner of the boarding house were just so happy at the outcome. They never pressed her further. Jonah Connor, the 17-year-old son of Amos Connor, who owned the general store, had fallen in love with Annabelle. The Lawson family is a fine family, and I will call upon her father tomorrow then. We will discuss a plan for marriage when the two of you are of age. Annabelle's younger brother Thomas, who was 14, took after his father and was blessed with a green thumb. He often worked alongside Cyrus and learned how to create remedies for illnesses, salves for burns and infections, and rudimentary pills held together by bits of bread and honey that cured headaches and fevers. He also had a sixth sense for knowing exactly where an illness was hiding in the body just by looking at a patient. The town doctors could often be found asking young Thomas for his advice on a diagnosis when they were particularly stumped. Most of these instances occurred when treating invalids from other places 
as most of the permanent residents of Ashdale were only ever bothered by minor ailments. Doctor, may I see the child? I've heard around town that he's not getting well. The child is in the room in the back of the house. He has a stomach ailment. He has presented with extreme evacuation and fever. I have been giving him tonic in his tea for almost seven days, but the boy has fallen more ill. Hmm. Let me see. This boy has no stomach ailment. The infection is in his lung. Has he been playing outside where the mushrooms have been growing? Miss Williams, could that be true? It can. There was mushrooms in the yard some time back, but they are no longer there. Does not matter. The fermented parts mixed with the dirt. Can you give the boy a mixture? Geranium and lemongrass. Call upon my father. He will give it to you in a broth. The treatment was successful, and the child made a full recovery. The twins, Noah and Rebecca Lawson, were nine years old. They had a preternatural way of seeming to know exactly what a person was thinking. When they were younger and didn't understand how to temper their abilities with diplomacy, they would often blurt out fragments of thoughts to the people around them, or ask follow-up questions to a thought that had never been uttered. Most of the townspeople had written the twins' idiosyncrasy off as coincidence, and as they got older and learned how to better navigate these gifts without calling attention to themselves, the eeriness that people had previously felt during their presence quickly faded and had been forgotten. The Lawson family was beloved and celebrated in the town. They were integral to the success of the town in more ways than anyone would ever know and they were never left off any guest list. They had a small group of naysayers, but they were merely hushed voices, volleying rumors and doubt back and forth like a game of catch. None of it was taken seriously until the day the first body was found on the edge of the Lawson property. As stated in the town's ledger, there had been a rash of missing girls from Ashdale and some of the neighboring towns of Judd, Springhill, and Briarwood. The disappearances started out at about one a month, and then quickly grew to three or four a month. Search parties had been conducted, but most of the girls who went missing were from poorer, less prominent families. There wasn't a whole lot being done. It was only by chance that the first body was even discovered. The woods were crowded with tall, gnarled trees full of bumps and hollows, that resembled faces frozen in silent screams. Even on the brightest day of summer, the woods remained dark and misty and oppressively damp. The smell of wet soil and old leaves was so overpowering that it caused dizziness in many and headaches in others. The woods ran along the edge of both the Lawson property and one of the Kovacs pieces of land. Most people avoided the area, but it was the only way to get to town from the base of the mountain. The men had been hurrying through the forest as fast as the horses would take them, desperate to get through before the sun set. Suddenly, one of the wheels on their coach got stuck in the mud, and they were forced to get down and try to pry the wheel free from the stagnant muck. They had two dogs with them, who had jumped off the still wagon and were wandering close by. One of them stopped to investigate something that seemed to be sticking up off the ground a few yards away from the wagon and began to bark ceaselessly at the thing, backing up an inch at a time as if slowly moving away from it. 
Do you see that there? One of the men went to investigate, and as he got closer, he saw the thin, pale, waxy-skinned arm of a girl showing through the loose soil. Unwilling to believe what he was seeing was real, he picked up a stick and began prodding it. Sure that if he uncovered more of it, he would see that it wasn't the arm of a dead girl, but perhaps the bloated underbelly of some animal that upon first glance only resembled the pale, bluish flesh of a corpse arm. Unfortunately for the hunter, he was wrong, and the more he prodded and poked and dug at the arm, the more that was revealed until finally... He was staring at the mutilated, jagged, black flesh of a decomposing arm that had been hacked or sawed off by something with very dull blades. It's a girl, a young woman. She looks about 14 at most. She is dead. She has been dead. Her body is not fresh. This is Lawson property. Later, he would think back to what he saw as he lie awake, unable to sleep and wonder if those were not blade marks that he saw, but teeth, as if the limb had been gnawed off. A full search of the woods near the Lawson property found 14 bodies of murdered girls who had been drained of most of their blood. Coroners from neighboring towns had to be called on to examine the bodies because there were so many of them. The bodies were in various states of decomposition, and several of them had been disemboweled. The forest was a gruesome graveyard. There were pits filled with the entrails and organs, many of which were unrecognizable as kidneys or livers, and had putrefied into pools of black and brown goo that soaked the soil and filled the air with the internal organ smell of a rancid slaughterhouse. Twelve heads had been found buried in a thicket of briar and poison oak. It was a scene so horrifying that many of the men who were involved in the search passed out or vomited from what they saw. Even coroners, already intensely familiar with death, had to step away and take walks before continuing. The last two heads were never found. Despite the insistence from the Lawson family that they had nothing to do with the murders, and in fact had no idea the bodies were buried so close to their property. The town, save a small group of people, immediately turned against them. Men, we have always known that the Lawson family was capable of witchcraft. We ignored their evil. Look where that has gotten us. We must take a stand against their devil magic. Men, Come with me to arrest the Lawsons so that we may rid this town of their evil. The town didn't have a courthouse large enough to hold all the people who wanted to watch the trial, so the church was used. The family had been removed from their home and were kept in the jailhouse. It was a small jail, one with a large cell in the middle, crammed full of thieves and drunks. It was dirty with urine and vomit and all manner of bodily fluids. There were benches along the walls, but most of them had been taken, and so the Lawsons sat on the filthy floor, shooing away the mice and rats that had made their way in through the bars. Annabelle had known something was going to happen. 
She'd been dreaming about the girls for months. Flashes of images, slivers of scenes that she couldn't make sense of. She wished she had told her mother about them. She'd seen them all and she knew that they had been murdered, but she could never see by whom. All she saw was a large stone cellar. Perhaps it was a dungeon. The kind that she had read about in stories of maidens and castles being kept against their will. She saw chained shackles and blood and torn flesh. Snapped tendons and cut out spleens. Pointed stained teeth and a black mouth. Long hair, white skin, a flowing gown. But none of these visions had been clear enough to explain or interpret. She huddled with her family in the dank, foul cell and tried to take herself back to the visions, desperate to see who had hurt those girls. It was difficult to concentrate with the constant droning of slurred words and pained moaning of the men around her. There were buckets scattered around the cell, used as toilets. The smell of dirty skin and stale beer was enough to make her dizzy. Despite there being no running water anywhere in the cell, there was a steady dripping that grated on her nerves. Annabelle could not focus. If everything could just go quiet for a moment, she could make herself see what she hadn't before. After two long days being locked in a cell, the family was escorted back to the house where they were allowed to bathe and change their clothes for the trial that was to start that afternoon. Men, do not leave them alone. For a moment alone is enough time for them to use their evil magic. They will kill us all. Sarah bathed herself and Rebecca, and while Annabelle helped dress Rebecca, Sarah bathed and dressed Noah. They hadn't spoken much since the arrests. Cyrus had remained stoic, but gentle. He took every chance he could to hug his children close. He'd heard the mob outside the jail the previous night. They were shouting vile things about the devil and witchcraft. Witches! Witches! Burn them all! He'd never known fear like the fear he felt the past two days. He felt hopeless and unsure of his family's future. He had no hope for a just trial. The only people on his family's side were the Connors and a few other families that had sent messages through the guards. Amos Connor had even offered to stand as his defense lawyer, but Cyrus had said no. He did not want the Connors to get involved and risk being ostracized by the rest of the town. Once the family was bathed and dressed, they climbed into a wagon that was surrounded by wooden planks, like a somber picket fence and covered by a canvas roof. Sarah felt caged. She closed her eyes and tried to focus on the sound of the wind through the trees as the wagon took them farther and farther away from their home. She knew they would never live there again. She knew that even if by some great cosmic miracle, they escaped these allegations with their lives, their time in Ashdale was over. She felt the white heat of tears spring to her eyes. She felt the prickling sting of her nose and knew that if she didn't breathe deeply, she would begin to cry and she would never stop. Cyrus sat at a long table that had been brought into the church for the purposes of the trial. 
he and his family sat behind it in irons, while a group of town leaders sat facing them from the pulpit seated in a row. There were four of them, Reverend Steele, Judge Finnegan, Judge Harmon, who was from Spring Hill, and Judge Smith from Briarwood. In most towns, this kind of panel version of a trial had been done away with once the court system had been enacted by the federal government. But things weren't always done the correct way in the smaller, more rural towns in this country. And because there had never been a murder trial in this town before, no one really seemed to know how to go about it. They operated by their own rules. The room was silent but for the rattling sound of the chains as the children moved around nervously in their chairs. Judge Finnegan spoke first. We are here today to determine the guilt or innocence of Cyrus Lawson, Sarah Lawson, Annabelle Lawson, Thomas Lawson, Noah Lawson, and Rebecca Lawson. Let the record reflect that the defendants are present and have chosen to represent themselves. The family remained silent and faced forward. You have been accused of the murder of 14 young women and are suspected of the demise of several more whom have not yet been recovered. Stand and tell me what you say to these charges. I say that my family and I had nothing to do with these horrid crimes. We have done nothing to warrant your suspicions. I wouldn't presume to tell you of what you should conclude, but I offer that first. The bodies were found near my property, not on it. Second, I would submit that someone else, the person who is actually responsible for these brutalities, has planted these bodies in such close proximity to my property to make you think that my family is guilty. That is a rather convenient defense. What proof of this do you have? Judge Finnegan, you know our family. You know that we would never do something like this. We heal people. We don't kill them. You'll do well to keep your mouth shut, Miss Lawson, unless directly asked a question. This panel has no interest in anything else you have to say. Mind your restless children. Their constant fidgeting is giving me a headache. Judge Finnegan, I implore you. Do you really think of me as someone that could murder young girls? Just last month, you sent your own daughter to me for treatment of high fevers and muscle spasms. Did I not treat her with care? Did I not send her home well and happy? Yes, I did send Lydia to Cyrus last month and that, yes, she had come home cured and in good spirits. Still, that does not change that these bodies were buried a hair's breadth from your land. We should consider ourselves lucky. I know now that Lydia could have ended up dead on your property. Is it true that your wife converses with animals? Sir, my wife no more converses with animals as you do sing with sparrows. And you would do well to maintain the proper rules of the court afforded to me and my family as outlined by the Constitution instead of this travesty. You've scoured our home and my greenhouse and have found no murder weapons, no evidence of a crime, and not even an inkling of wrongdoing. I tell you for the hundredth time that the scoundrel who committed these crimes has used my land as his own private cemetery. Burn them all! Witch! Burn them! Get them! Kill them! They're guilty! Guilty! They were under pressure to punish someone for the crimes, and while there was no actual evidence against the family other than the bodies, 
They felt it was far-fetched to believe that someone else planted the bodies on the property so to arouse suspicion of the family. Who else would have motive? The truth of the matter was that the town had never been fully comfortable with the strange abilities of the Lawson family, and there was still a very strong and real fear among the people of bewitchment and hidden dealings with the devil. They had had their own witch trials at the beginning of the 1700s, which had seen the execution of three women and one man. It had all been documented in the town ledger, and despite over 100 years that had since passed, people were still skeptical of things that they couldn't explain or didn't understand. But the townspeople weren't entirely wrong about their suspicions. The Lawson family did possess a magic that couldn't be explained. However, it wasn't to the malevolent, dark force that they assumed. Their magic was internal. It wasn't something that they had conjured or sung the devil's praises to while dancing naked in the firelight on a full moon's eve. It was the gift of natural magic filled with light, and the town was blessed because of it. The second day of the trial was spent questioning witnesses. The first person questioned was Harrison Balfour, one of the men who had discovered the first body, followed by Samuel Phillips, who had been with him. Both of those interviews were straightforward, with little conjecture from either man or the judges, since there was no evidence other than the proximity of the bodies to the Lawson property. Most of the witness testimony was character-based. Those who believed the family was guilty of the murders believed the children had participated by luring the girls in. The stories got more and more elaborate as the day went on. Cyrus did his best to expose the witnesses' motives for lying about his family, but it didn't seem to do any good. With each story, the men on the panel kept shaking their heads with incredulity and tisking audibly. It didn't matter how ridiculous the stories got or how well Cyrus deflected the accusations. There seemed to be nothing that would convince the judges or the reverend of the Lawson's innocence. None of the witnesses that testified in favor of the family were taken seriously, and, in the end, the whole family was found guilty of murder. The family had quietly accepted their fate. They had been filled a dinner of roast beef and carrots, which none of them touched. They were quiet that night. They communicated mostly through long hugs and hand squeezes, long glances filled with emotion that couldn't be expressed in words. Just before midnight, Reverend Steele came to see the family and allow them one last chance to repent before they were to be executed. My family has nothing to repent for. You think murder is nothing? Cyrus stared at him for a long time, saying nothing. He could tell that Reverend Steele was uncomfortable in silence. He shifted his weight from foot to foot and fingered the pages of the worn, tattered Bible nervously. Rebecca watched the gilded edges of the pages glint in the low light of the oil lamps. She looked over at her twin brother, who nodded approvingly, and she turned back toward the reverend and spoke. Reverend Steele, there's something you should know. Speak, child. If you punish our family... 
kill our family for these crimes we did not commit. This town will suffer. Are you threatening a curse? Are you making bonds with the devil to curse this town? My family's presence in this town created a blessing. I could never create a curse upon this town. We took care of everyone. If you unjustly punish us, you are creating your own curse. She is right. It will not be our doing. The universe has a way of settling things. If you do this, all the light that we brought here will turn dark. All the good that we did will sour. Murderers and witches do not scare me. You have visitors. Amos, his wife Anna, Jonah and their daughter Emily entered the room and stood in front of the cell, helplessly staring at their friends, who could do nothing but stare back at them. You are risking your family's life by coming here. Emily ran to the twins and Noah. She grabbed their hands through the bars. She handed a small, faceless rag doll to Rebecca. Jonah reached for Annabelle's hand. Their fingers touched briefly before weaving together in a braid of trembling knuckles and damp skin. They whispered their love in slight voices made heavy with sorrow for a life that could have been. She looked into his eyes and saw him holding a little boy with blonde curls and cherub cheeks. She saw him happy and thriving and living far from Ashdale. She felt thankful that she knew he would be okay. But she also felt angry for the time that was being stolen from her and from all of them. Reverend Steele announced that it was time for them to go. Annabelle clung tightly to Jonah. The day of the execution was unusually cold for that time of year. There was a stillness to the town that was unnervingly conspicuous. The sun was out, but the light it emitted was a silty gray, as if filtered through a dirty window. There were no sounds of nature. All of the animals were quiet and subdued. There hadn't been an execution in the town in over 100 years, so gallows had to be constructed. It was simply made, with two upright posts and a crossbeam. It was just wide enough for six bodies. It had been tested several times the day before with sandbags tied together and the approximate weight of each of the lossons. Every time the trapdoor was released, the ropes snapped tight. Cyrus felt his heart pound hard in his chest in synchrony. They were led single file up onto the scaffolding wrists shackled in front of them. They faced the crowd, stoic. A mass of angry faces screamed at them from the crowd that had gathered. Get him! Kill him! They threw trash and old apples at the family. The air was heavy with the weight of their vitriol. Through the din of their shouting, Annabelle saw the world get smaller and smaller until it was a tiny pinprick of dull light. She saw it. She saw everything. She saw the town crumbling under the heft of the darkness it was about to invite in. She saw blood and fire and cracked earth and barren trees. She searched the mob for Jonah but couldn't find him. He and his family had gone home to pack and to make arrangements to leave as quickly as possible. A rope was placed around each of their necks. Cyrus was on one end, Sarah on the other. Rebecca and Noah had been split up, 
with Noah beside his father and Rebecca by her mother. Thomas and Annabel were in the middle. There was a short sermon given by the reverend preaching the evils of Satan and praying for the salvaged souls of the six people before him. Surely still children of God, even in the wake of all of their wickedness. And when that trapdoor opened, and when the bodies of the Lawson family fell through that square cutout in the wood with the bone-crackling snaps, uncontrollable body jerking, and spasms until one by one they each went limp and still, something happened. At that moment, there was a great cacophonous roar of animal wailing that sounded so unnatural, some of the mob began to pray. A white flash filled the sky, and everyone screamed. Lightning struck the churches, and the bell inside the tower was crushed. The animal sounds got louder, and the pitches grew higher. The people covered their ears and ran for a quieter place. A thunderous rumble shook the earth with such force that several lost their balance, falling over. Suddenly, the quaking stopped. The animals grew quiet. The townspeople helped each other and looked around. They expected to see a great hole in the earth or crumbling buildings, but nothing had been disturbed. Everything was as it had been. The townspeople went home while three men stayed behind, tasked with burying the Lawson family in the town cemetery. There would be no funeral, no flowers, no headstones, just a simple marker with their names, dates of birth, and date of execution. It wasn't until the next day that they noticed the creek water had turned red, as if it ran with blood. When examined closer, it still had the consistency of water. A group of people drew straws to see who dared taste the water. Reverend Steele drew the short straw. He gulped down a cupful with no hesitancy and made an awful face. He reported that the water tasted like pennies and vinegar. None of the people, including Reverend Steele, had noticed the movement in the thick of the woods on the other side of the creek. A dark, hunched mass of gray fur, matted with blood and dirt, made its way quickly through the tangle of unearthed roots and dense shrubs. It emerged through a small clearing and stood on the water's edge. The small group of people on the other side were startled by the animal's sudden appearance. Reverend Steele had been facing the other way, and he had not seen it. When he turned around, he locked eyes with the beast and knew instantly what was about to happen. The demon wolf had returned. He shouted for everyone to run, but the thing had already leapt across the water and was within mere feet of the reverend. He could smell the fetid decay of its breath and felt the tiny droplets of saliva that fell from its mouth as it snarled at him. Reverend Steele began to pray loudly, begging God for help, but none came. The creature lunged, and with one instant was on top of him, and its claws and teeth were tearing at his throat. 
The people running away could hear the blood-choked gurgles of his screams. None of them looked back, and none of them tried to help him. The sounds of ripping flesh and snapping tendon was deafening. The creature bit and scratched and shredded his flesh. A fine red mist of the reverend's blood hung low in the air above it. The screaming had stopped, but the creature had not. He continued to attack until there was nothing left of the reverend but partially chewed entrails and clumps of hair and muscle that ran slowly down the slope of the embankment and into the creek. That was the day that Ashdale's story ended and Blood Creeks began. The town was never the same after that day. Something dark and angry had settled there and was content to never leave. As the decades passed, the town learned to live with the shadows and eventually forgot that there was ever a time before it. The memory of Ashdale grew fainter and fainter with each new generation. The descendants of those people would never know true peace under the black banner of Blood Creek Skies. I want to give a quick shout out to the Den Podcast of the Month, Horsing Around, the Red Horse Podcast. Check out the link in our show notes. This episode of Twilight and Terror was written by Eve Hollister, produced by Melissa Lancaster, with voice acting by Dave Wallowitz, Mandy Elliott, Mary Wallowitz, Brian Lancaster, Timmy Lancaster, Lexi Lancaster, Julie Lancaster, and Melissa Lancaster. And I want to give a special thank you to everyone involved in this project. We're not professionals, so if you have a positive comment, you can email us at twilightandterror at gmail.com. You can check out our website at darkandominousentertainment.com. For music and sound credits, check out our show notes. And as always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed.